Well, we are continuing this morning our series on the Lord's Supper, and our text is the New Testament lesson uh, from 1 Corinthians 5, so that'll be the text we'll be going through, and we'll make three points that are there on your outline, excommunication, leaven, and the feast. So 1 Corinthians 5, the first thing we want to look at is excommunication. This is what's happening in the broader context at Corinth. Um, There has been, as you heard in the reading, an egregious act of immorality at Corinth. A man has his father's wife, uh, not his mother, but his stepmother. And the Corinthians, who have a, a serious case of spiritual blindness, are actually arrogant about it. Um, And Paul says they should rather be in mourning and that the one who's done this is to be removed from among them. Essentially, this is related to our idea of excommunication, removed from the communion of the saints. And by implication, removed from the communion table. That's where the term comes from. And the actual act of removing this man, the act of excommunication, takes place in verses 3 through 5. You can see it there. Now, if you look at verses 3 through 5, there are a lot of interesting things there. And even some things that are strange and hard to understand. But I just want to see the big picture. Uh, Paul had pronounced judgment on this incestuous man. And he says, when the church is assembled in the Lord's name, and I'm with you in spirit, you are to deliver this man over to Satan. For the destruction of his flesh, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord Jesus. So the man is removed from the fellowship and he's cast into the realm of darkness, ultimately, of course, for his good and for the salvation of his soul in the day of Christ. It's harsh medicine, but it is medicine. And in verse nine, if you skip down in verse nine, you'll see that Paul corrects a misunderstanding. He had written them another letter, right? this previous letter, and they had misunderstood it. He did not say, he tells them, that they were not to associate with immoral or idolatrous people of this world. I mean, otherwise, he says, you'd have to leave the world. Um, He meant that they were not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He says, but who is immoral or greedy or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. They're not even to eat with such a one, Paul says. And that is quite remarkable what he says. He says, we don't judge those who are outside the church. You know, sometimes I think the exact opposite of this is true for us. A lot of Christians I know spend a lot of time judging those outside the church. If we judged ourselves as harshly as we judged uh, our political opponents, we'd be the holiest people on the planet. Man, we are quick to render judgment. Paul says, you know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5? He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's quite remarkable. Do you know any Christians for whom that is their fundamental attitude? What have I to do with judging outsiders? God judges those who are outside, he says. That's God's business. We judge those who are inside. It's time for judgment to begin, Peter says, and it begins with us at the house of God. So if you're living before the face of the the God who is holy fire, you don't start complaining about other people's sins. 
Thus, citing Deuteronomy 17, he says, purge the evil person from among you. So it's back, it's back to a reference to the man who has his father's wife. So he's kind of come full circle in the chapter. And this is his concern throughout. The church has to worry about purifying itself and not about taking the prerogative of judging the world. She must remove, Paul says, blatant, unrepentant sin from her midst. Church discipline is one of the marks of the church, according to the reformers. And it's for the honor of Christ. And it's for the ultimate good of the one being disciplined. You see that in the text where he says, you're going to have to do this to this man so that he can be saved in the day of the Lord. But it's also for the church. It's for the rest of the body of Christ. Our confession says it's for purging out the leaven that might infect the whole lump. So it's kind of a medical procedure, right, where you try to remove the cancer and leave the healthy tissue. So that's the background of what's happening. That's excommunication. Now, it's that, in that context, Paul starts talking about leaven. So that's our second point here, leaven. Verse 6. So here you can see their spiritual elitism, their confidence that somehow, because they're in Christ, they're beyond judgment. Your boasting is not good, he says. And then he cites what appears to be a well-known proverb. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's using leaven here as a metaphor, a metaphor for sin, And leaven spreads, Paul says. It spreads its influence. It leavens the whole lump of dough. So the point is not hard to grasp. He's saying, look, sin, a little unrepentant sin, can spread its influence. Right? Sin does not stay cordoned off in our lives or in our communities. It it moves around. And it can defile many in the body of Christ. So he issues a command He issues an imperative, and he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump. It's an allusion to the feast of unleavened bread. And this brings us closer to our topic, right? It's an allusion to the feast of unleavened bread, which was attached to, right? It was celebrated in conjunction with. In fact, it was celebrated directly on the heels of the Passover, So you could kind of speak of it as one joint feast, the Passover slash unleavened bread feast. And you heard it in the reading from Exodus 12 this morning. Here's what it said there. This day, the day of Passover, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And then the very next verse says this. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So you can see they bleed over into each other. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day. Now listen, this is a serious matter. If anyone eats what's leavened, they shall be cut off from Israel. (laughs) They'll be removed from the covenant. So Paul has this background in mind when he writes now to a Greek church, a Gentile church in Corinth, and says, cleanse out the old leaven. It's figurative language for removing sin. 
Now, again, in this context, in this case, it's first and foremost removing the incestuous man from the fellowship. Now, in Israel, right, this was a rigorous process. Like, you can, you can find texts, rabbinic texts, about using flashlights, right, to make sure all of the leaven is out of one's house during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that kind of seriousness and rigor is warranted because to partake of leaven, any leaven, is to be excommunicated, cut off from Israel. So when Paul uses this metaphor here at Corinth, he is saying, listen, the church is called to a purifying, purging judgment of sin from her own midst. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you might be a fresh new lump, loaf of bread. Now, that can sound daunting and even impossible. But I want you to notice, and this is always the case with the gospel. It's a beautiful thing to see what the apostle does here. The imperative, right, the commandment, cleanse out the old leaven. Even though it comes first here, he says it first. The commandment always rests. It always rests on this prior indicative, meaning the prior statement of the work of God's grace in the gospel. It's always, God has done this for you, now do this. And this is why the commands, the imperatives to deal with sin, are not a form of works righteousness. So look at the text again, because it might be surprising. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. And then look at this. As you really are unleavened. That's a surprising way to end the sentence. Notice, you already are new, unleavened loaf that you are striving to become. If you don't get this right, your whole life of sanctification will be a misery. In sanctification, we are striving to become what we already are. We are already cleansed. We are already washed. Cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you really are. This is wonderful news. This is good news, right? We don't believe in the gospel that gets you saved and then some mixed combination of stuff by which you grit your teeth and tough it out and make it all the way to the end, partially by your own obedience, partially by grace. We believe in the gospel, what Walter Walter Marshall, the old Puritan from the 17th century, called the gospel mystery of sanctification. Sanctification is a gospel mystery. It's done in the light of the gospel. So we could paraphrase the apostle like this. Clean out the old leaven so that you might become what you already are. Now that changes the whole way you look at Christian obedience. Cleanse yourself so that you might become clean as you already are clean in Jesus Christ. This is the logic of the gospel. Right? The imperative or the commands rest on the indicative. That is, they rest on what God has already made us and done for us in Jesus Christ. At no point do we supplement that. You get this balance wrong, and you either have legalism, which is, I must do this now to be pleasing and accepted with God. 
Right? The fate of the kingdom depends on my obedience. Or, to att- or God gets me into the covenant, but I need to be obedient to attain to heaven itself. Right? There are popular reformed-ish preachers who say things like this. So you get legalism if you don't get this right. It's often disguised, it's often masked, but it is a form of legalism. Or you can get lawlessness, where people say, well, I'm already clean in Christ. There's no need for strenuous moral effort on my part. There's a, right? And Paul gets it just right, right? He gets it just right without falling into the ditch on either side, either legalism or lawlessness. Cleanse out the old leaven. That's an imperative command to you to deal with your soul so that you might be a new lump as you really already are. That's the part where you breathe a big sigh of relief and you find repentance and self-examination and sanctification to be a joy because it's done in that embrace. And why, why is this the logic? On what ground are we to strive to become what we really are? Well, he tells you. He tells you in the middle of verse 7. Christ, your Passover lamb, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Right? He moves from the unleavened bread back to the Passover lamb. The reason we clean out the old leaven to become new is because atonement has already been offered for us. This is a once-for-all, eternally efficient atonement for the people of God. It's a substitutionary offering. He dies for us. He doesn't die to get you in. He dies to get you in and keep you in and bring you all the way home. Right? And we show that we're not interested. This is the, the apostle's logic, I think. We're not interested in that sacrifice and its benefits if we continue to live in sin. If we show no concern about cleaning the pockets of leaven out of our lives before they spread. We do need to be continually cleansed. Another way to say it is the sacrifice that Jesus made as your Passover lamb provides for you not only legal acquittal, your justification before God, it is the ground for your cleansing and your sanctification, for your becoming a whole new, pure loaf of unleavened grain. So that's the leaven. All of that's really context for what I want to say concerning the supper, which is in our third point, the feast. This is the salient point, I think, for the series we're in. So here, Paul moves from the immediate situation at hand, concerning the man they're removing from the fellowship. He moves from that to the general application of what's going on for the whole community. To the general application. Now, here's here's Calvin on this. He says, it is quite usual for him to do this, right? Any any good pastor does this. Paul does this all the time. So Calvin says, it's quite usual for him to do this. When he has said something about a particular matter, he takes the opportunity to pass on from that to words of general encouragement. He had mentioned leaven in another connection, but since the same metaphor is suited to the general teaching that he's about to give, he makes further use of it. That's the end of the Calvin quote. So, yes, yes, he started off talking about 
the incestuous man and leaven. But now he's generalizing that's what teachers do. Now, I know, I know this may seem like a boring point, but it's critical to see what Paul's doing. He doesn't say, look, Corinthians, as long as you don't commit the same gross wickedness as the man with the father's wife or some other big flagrant sin, you're pretty good to go. Don't worry about it. Don't be obsessed with your own corruption. Don't go searching through your soul for every little bit of leaven. You know, you can say, well, I'm not committing incest. In fact, he does the opposite of that. He moves from the general case down into all of our hearts. Speaks to the whole church and says, look, since the Passover has been sacrificed, let us, let us now celebrate the festival. Or in some translations, let us keep the feast. So it's quite sophisticated. It's, in one sense, it's very simple. But Paul is doing something here that we have to catch. And we can do it by stopping right here and asking, what feast is he talking about? Let us keep the feast. Well, we've already seen he's alluded to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the feast here is a kind of new covenant Feast of Unleavened Bread. right? Based on Christ's new and final sacrifice. In other words, the feast here is the feast of the Christian life. The whole Christian life for Paul is a perpetual feast of unleavened bread. Which means it's a feast of perpetual repentance. You can find this in Calvin and the Reformed in generally. The Christian life is a life of continual repentance. But that's not morbidity. Once you see it in the light of Paul, right? that leads to gladness and joy. Or another way to say it is, the Christian life is a feast of continual cleansing, of scraping out the leaven of sin in our souls. Not at finger pointing at people outside the church and their leaven. Scraping out the leaven that's in our soul in the light of and on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death. It's not a work. It's all of grace. It's all done by looking to Christ, the Passover lamb. But it does engage our our will and our emotions and our being. Right? That death, the Passover death, which is memorialized on that table, right? That is the flashlight by which we search the house of our hearts. Right? What does Proverbs say? It says, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord by which he searches all his innermost parts. Right? The mere fact that your body and soul means that you're, you have a deep interiority about you, a deep personal mystery, that God is constantly flooding with the light of his presence. Your very spirit is a kind of divine lamp which God uses to search your inner being. So we should think of the Christian life as a perpetual feast of unleavened bread, a perpetual feast of repentance and, and seeking to cleanse ourselves. But when, we, when Paul says, let us celebrate the feast, there is almost certainly a reference to that feast, to the Lord's Supper here as well. And there's a couple reasons for this. First, we know the supper is the new Passover feast. Right? And thus the supper calls us 
to live as those who clean out the leaven in our lives. Secondly, right, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 5, the context is excommunication. Removing someone from the table. And finally, at the end of the chapter, down in verse 11, Paul says, we're not even to eat with such a person. So consider, like reflect with me. You have a context where Paul is talking about the following. Passover, excommunication, eating, feasting. So the feast he refers to is both the supper and the Christian life in general. When he says, let us celebrate the feast, he's saying, let us celebrate the supper and let us live the Christian life in this way. Now, I hope that this is something you expect by now in this series on the Eucharist. Because I think I've said it a couple times, I'm not sure, but I think I have. The supper is a condensed version of the Christian life. The the shape of the supper is the shape of Christian existence. How, you might ask. How, How can that be true? Well, the supper lifts you up into heaven. The supper makes us heavenly-minded people. It displaces us, if you will. Reminds us that we are raised with Christ, that we are seated with him. We are a people who belong to heaven and belong to the age to come. And the second thing the supper says is, and yet as a people called to live in this age, you live in that form, in that way of the cross, that way of being poured out, that way of brokenness, right? That way of powerlessness, that way of witness, that way of martyrdom. The very structure of the Christian life is presented to you every week in the Eucharist. So, the feast, broadly construed, is the whole Christian life. When Paul speaks of the feast, narrowly construed, he's talking about the supper. Okay? So now, we ask, okay, how then should we celebrate the feast? Well, Paul tells us, not with the old leaven. The old leaven was first a reference to the incestuous man, but Paul here broadens it out and applies it to all of us. After all, we all have an old man, a sinful nature. Not with the old leaven of malice and evil. Not with the old leaven of malice and evil. Now, malice and evil are now forbidden in the celebration of that feast. This is part, again, of why the Reformed have always guarded the table. It's not just guarding it from someone who might publicly commit incest or get drunk like the Corinthians were. It's to be guarded, Paul says here, from malice and evil. And these are general terms. They're virtual synonyms, these two words in the Greek. And they're broad terms. And they are designed to cover every form of wickedness and iniquity. So, you might be thinking this already, but let me just say it. No form of wickedness is acceptable in the celebration of the feast. Right? Just as no form of leaven was acceptable in the feast of unleavened bread. How much leaven could you have in your house and still not get cut off from Israel? None. Right? Just as no form of sin is acceptable in the feast of the Christian life. Right? There's no point in the Christian life where we say, well, these are little sins, you know, and they're okay, we accept them. So Paul says, you want to come to the feast, no malice, no evil. Or as Peter puts it, 
We must put away all malice and all deceit and all slander and all hypocrisy and all envy. That's what it means to be involved in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Instead, Paul says, we celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's doing something very basic about the supper here. He's saying, no malice, no evil. Scrape them out if you want to celebrate this feast. Instead, come to the feast with two replacement virtues, sincerity and truth. And these are also very broad words. They speak to our hearts and its motivations, as well as to our behavior. Sincerity and truth here mean that which is fully authentic, without sham, without pretense, without hypocrisy, without deceit. The words mean something which can stand the test of the full light of day. They speak of openness and honesty and a lack of guile, of walking in the light. They speak to a deep and a real and an earnest purity of heart and life. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth is reflected in one who with earnest heart says, as the psalmist says, search me, O God. See, we are never independently searching ourselves. It's not like we push God out and say, I'm going I'm to examine my soul for a while. We're inviting God in. And we're saying to God, who is our Father and who loves us and who has redeemed us, search me, O God. Know my heart. Know, try me. Try my thoughts. And see if there's anything grievous or hurtful in me. And then lead me in the everlasting way. Do you do that? You have to invite God to search you. This is what it means to come to the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity. Paul uses this word for sincerity three times in his writings. Right? In one time, it means open and honest speech. That's 2 Corinthians 2. In 2 Corinthians 1, it means godliness. It's just a synonym for godliness. And in Philippians 1, it means being pure on the day of Christ. So sincerity here is something much more than the absence of insincerity. It's a deep, robust, ethical state, a requirement to celebrate the feast. A simpler way to put all of this would be to say, the feast requires everything the Christian life requires. What's required to live the Christian life is required to celebrate the feast, for the feast is a condensed version of the Christian life. That's sincerity, but notice, he adds another word. You have to celebrate in sincerity and in truth. Right? Truth speaks of the understanding. Truth means having a cognitive grasp of the gospel and the truth of the faith. It entails fidelity to what's revealed. And so to celebrate the feast in truth is to conform inwardly to the truth that's set forth in the feast. Again, this is why the Reformed Church require the profession of the faith of the church. Right? The profession of the creed, which, as I said last week, Calvin viewed as a public vow, an oath by which you are saying, I vow before God to live and die in this faith. So sincerity and truth go hand in hand. They are the unleavened bread which we put on after we cast off the leaven of malice and evil. So, 
Let me conclude. The feast of the Christian life is a perpetual war against all sin. It is a feast of unleavened bread in new covenant form. Not some big sins, all sin. Even a little leaven spreads its poison. That's why Christian existence is crucifixion and resurrection with Christ. This is why Jesus can say things, astonishing things like, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or the writer to the Hebrews can say, Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Again, we don't take this as a new work. right? If you take it as a new work, then I'm going to ask you this question. How are you doing with your holiness? How are you doing with the purity of your heart? Well, then you're not, that's not how we understand these commands. We understand these commands as things we pursue with vigor as those who've already been purified. Right? As those who've already been set apart as holy by the Lord. So again, we have to watch that balance. Right? We don't want to go around saying you have to pursue holiness or else you're not going to see God. And the next thing you know, you've been pursuing holiness for 10 years and you've created a mountain of self-righteousness. So it's really tricky to get this right. It's really tricky to get this right. But it does mean this. It does mean the feast of the Christian life and the feast of the table are also the site of our perpetual and glad and already won war against sin. So again, this is why the church requires a robust confession of faith and an ability to examine one's conscience and repent. It's the very nature of the feast. The feast demands you put aside malice and evil, that you celebrate it with sincerity and truth. Let me just try and uh, summarize this one more way. To celebrate in sincerity and truth requires two things. Both a robust confession of faith That's what truth demands. And an ability to probe one's conscience and heart and repent, that's what sincerity demands. And if you want to see this worked out in the light of the gospel, not as a law, but in the light of the gospel, you can go to our larger catechism, questions 170 through 177. This is just catechetical teaching. Without these things, one defiles themselves in the Christian life and one defiles the feast. Again, just to reiterate in closing, this is no way a work of righteousness or a work of merit. We can profess the faith. We can test ourselves. We can repent of sin. We can remove the leaven in our lives only because Christ the Passover has already been sacrificed. Only because you already are a clean lump. Right? It is that sacrifice. Right? Now raised and ascended. He's the one through whom God grants faith and grants repentance and grants a radical breach with all sin. So please don't mishear me. It is in the embrace of God as Father and in the love of Christ displayed there as children of the covenant, in the solicitude and love of the church, that we profess our faith and that we forsake leaven in all its forms. So that sacrifice is what enables us to refrain, if necessary, 
so that we come to the communion for blessing and not for discipline. This is what's required. Let's hear Calvin one more time. Notice what he does here. He's, he's, He's commenting on this text. And he connects our text to the Lord's Supper as I've done here today. He says this, Therefore, if we want to feed on the flesh and blood of Christ, let us bring sincerity and truth to this feast, letting them be our unleavened bread. Let there be an end to all malice and wickedness, since it is against God's will to introduce leaven into the Passover. That's the whole sermon from the lips of Calvin right there. So let us then, as we come to the table, celebrate the feast. And it is a celebration. But we celebrate it not with the old leaven of malice and wickedness. We celebrate it with the unleavened bread of sincerity of truth. The bread which you already are in Jesus Christ. Amen.